good morning, everybody. Today's uh, passage reading has a particularly nice ring to it. It's Joel 1. So, Joel chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter. So, when you find it, would you please stand? All right, Joel chapter 1, verse 1. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines, and splintered my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark, and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the minister of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the, net, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the cloud, under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. And how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Look to you for understanding now. Father, we take this uh, ancient text, Lord, and we're, we're uh, looking at it and asking that you grant uh, that we may understand and grant that we may uh, give right application. Father, I ask this morning that you anoint me to deliver the very message you would have delivered and, again, enable all of us to hear and understand rightly apply your truth. May it be for our growth in grace.
grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, and Lord, for your eternal glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. All right. Interesting, uh, interesting passage before us this morning. Um, and I want, I want to give a, probably better set a little bit of um, context here on how I'm going to, how we need to approach this. So um, I tell you what, let's do. Let's look at a couple of passages, and we'll come back here. Um, turn with me over to John chapter five, and look at verse thirty-nine. Jesus is speaking to Jews here. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, when you see a reference to scripture like that, obviously um, what what Jesus is referring to is what we call the Old Testament. Because that's all the scripture they had at the time. So from, from Genesis to Malachi, what we call the Old Testament, is what he's referring to as the Scripture. And he tells the Jews who do not believe in him, he's speaking uh, to, to Jews who are not accepting him here, he says, look, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And that's, of course, right, by the way. But he says, um, it is they, that, in other words, it is the Scripture that bear witness about me. So what he's saying is, and really this, this is a, an astounding statement, what Jesus is saying is the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, again, what we call the Old Testament uh, or Old Covenant, the Scripture point to Christ. And this is what the, the Jews who rejected Christ were missing. They, they were not getting this. And, of course, even the, uh, the ones who did believe, you know, Jesus had to... Uh, uh, over over time, slowly reveal these things to them, and then of course, um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, after Jesus had uh, resurrected and ascended, the Holy Spirit would continue that ministry of of uh, making opening up the Scripture to them and making it known to them. Let me take you to one more, and there are others, but I'll just give you a couple here. Um, in Luke, look at Luke chapter twenty four. Luke chapter twenty four. Oh, and I should have pointed out, I'll just mention this, so you don't have to go back there, but <clears throat> I should have pointed out in John 5 that he goes on to say, let me see what verse it is here. He goes on to say in John 5:46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Again, an astounding statement. If you believed Moses, which is what they claimed. They claimed they, they were followers of Moses. But Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Again, he's saying that, he, that he's the point of what Moses wrote. So you consider the books of Moses, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The subject is Jesus. Jesus, all right? And then he goes on to say, but if you do not believe his writings, that is Moses' writings, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Because they're perfect harmony. They're in perfect harmony. All right, um, Luke 24, verse 44. Now, now this time Jesus is dealing with believers, disciples. He said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Again, it's a reference to what we call the Old Testament. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning, in, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus opens their minds to all that the Scripture says about Him. And then it is summed up this way. Luke sums it up this way. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's, that's the message of the Old Testament Scriptures. Genesis to Malachi. Christ is the focus. It's always pointing to Christ. All right? Um, let, me, let me give you one more. I said I was going to only give you those two, but let me give you one more. And this one is more uh, implied, but um, I think it's... Uh, I think it's clear, nonetheless. In John chapter 12, John chapter 12, and starting at about verse 38, Jesus quotes from Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6, Lord, who has believed, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the honor of the Lord been revealed. Verse 40, John uh, 1240, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, that's a quote from Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6. And then verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now this is John, the author of the Gospel of John, interjecting a thought here, um, interpreting what Jesus was doing. Uh, and what he was speaking about. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things, what Jesus just quoted. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And I, w I would submit to you that, that the, those pronouns, his and him, refer to Jesus. In other words, you could say it this way, and, and the NIV does translate it this way, although the, uh, the name of Jesus is not used here but the NIV translates it that way. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. That is, spoke of Jesus. So in other words, uh, I think what John is saying is, you go back and read Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, uh, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. What John is saying is, what Isaiah saw was Jesus high and lifted up. And he said these things, what, what he said in Isaiah 6 and what Jesus quoted here, he said these things when he saw his glory, Jesus' glory. All right, now, I'll give you all that just to, just to help us remember that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. He's the focus of the Old Testament. And we'll... We'll try to um, bring that out more as we go. So a lot of times people want to say, and I've, I've seen again recent, not too long ago on Facebook, somebody make a comment like this. A lot of times people want to want to talk about, you know, the two different gods <laughs> presented in the Bible. 
you know, one in the Old Testament, God of, uh, of uh, law and vengeance and so forth, and then in the New Testament, God of love, you know, Jesus Christ. Uh, well, that is not the case at all. There is perfect harmony uh, in the two uh, uh, covenants here in their view of God because we're talking about the one and the same God who was manifested in the flesh and we know as uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? So let's go back to Joel with all of that in mind. Joel chapter 1, and the first thing I want to point out is what Joel actually points out here uh, in his little header. He starts out by saying, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, um, Joel is interesting for various reasons, but here, here are a couple that uh, stand out to me. One, one is because we know so little about him and so little about the circumstances uh, that occasioned this book. We don't, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be talking about things as we go through here, but we have to generalize somewhat because we don't know the specifics because we don't know when it was written. Um, you know, they date it from anywhere to the, uh, the 9th to the uh, 5th century B.C. So, so you're talking about quite a span, several hundred years there, that it could have been written. It, it does seem, and, and again, we'll uh, talk about this more as we go, but it seems likely that it was, um, that it was penned after the, uh, uh, after the um, captivity. So Jerusalem fell in, in 586 B.C., so, so in other words, you'd be, you'd be talking sometime after that is likely, but, but we don't know that for certain, and it could have been prior to that. So we don't know, when, when, we, when we read about some of the things going on here, like, the, like the, uh, the famine and stuff that we're about to talk about, we don't know exactly when this took place, what, what Joel is referring to, Okay. Um, so, so it's interesting in that regard. We, we, we know almost nothing about the man, except that he's a prophet and son of Pethuel, all right? But we don't know who Pethuel is, uh, and we don't know anything about him. Um, so we know almost nothing about Joel, and we know almost nothing about the circumstances surrounding, um, the specific circumstances that, that, uh, that occasion the writing of the book. And yet, we, we have in... Acts chapter 2, a application of this, or, or really fulfillment of this prophecy, part of this prophecy, that is, that is uh, direct and clear. So, so on one hand, it's like we know almost nothing about Joel and the circumstances it was written in. On the other hand, as far as fulfillment, we've got a clear, direct, explicitly stated fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 that we'll... we'll uh, we'll probably look at when we get to Joel chapter 2. Uh, let, let me just say this about that now. When you, when you look at Acts chapter 2, 21, um, chapter 2, verse 21, I think it is, uh, Peter says on the day of Pentecost, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So, so what he goes on to talk about there in Acts chapter 2, Lord, and Lord willing, we'll cover it in time, but he's saying this is the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Joel. That's significant. Uh, so there's a direct um, fulfillment of, uh, of some of Joel's prophecy uh, in the New Testament. So, so that's also... Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, but we'll 
probably get into greater depth when we get into chapter 2 because that's really where we come into that. So just keep that in mind. First of all, Jesus is always the subject, um, and then also we've got a a direct fulfillment uh, of uh, Joel's prophecy uh, in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or at least the beginning of the fulfillment. All right, so back to verse 1 quickly here, Joel's header. Notice what he says, the word of the Lord, all right? So he's telling his hearers and his readers, and including us, he's telling us right up front, this is not uh, something that I concocted, this is not mere opinion of man, um, I'm not offering suggestions, I'm not uh, telling you what has taken place based on my own opinion. I'm not telling you what might take place based upon a good guess, educated guess. No, he's saying right up front, this is the word of the Lord. Now, the term Lord there, he uses the covenant name for God. Yahweh is the way that we think it's pronounced. Nobody knows for sure. Um, If you write it, it would be Y-W-H. The Hebrew had no vowels. Imagine that. So they, they, uh, they would supply them, of course, when they would sound out a word, but, but you didn't have them to write. Um, and so when they write, if, you know, when they transliterate Hebrew, if you see a, a word like... Uh, Hallelujah or Jehovah or something like that, which Jehovah is a uh, older form of this. I mean, people used to think that's what this was. Now they, you know, they 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 go more towards Yahweh as the proper pronunciation. But um, when you see a word like that, they the the vowels have been supplied based on how we think it was pronounced. Um, and why don't we know how Yahweh was pronounced for sure? especially since they're practicing Jews today. Because centuries ago, they quit pronouncing it. They, they consider it so holy that they will not say it. And so, uh, so the pronunciation is lost, uh, at least I think the certain pronunciation, is lost a long time ago. All right? But we know this. That's, that's the covenant name for God. It means I am. Remember... Back in Exodus, where, where God was sending Moses to the children uh, uh, to to free the children of Israel from Egypt, and Moses asked, "Who do I tell them sent me?" And the Lord said, "What? I am. I am that I am." Well, we could talk about that for a while. I mean, there's that. There's a lot. That that term is pregnant with. It's a it's a to be verb, and and it is it is pregnant with meaning. Um, it, it, you, you can. Think of it as I am that I am, or I am because I am. In other words, it, it, it is a way of, of uh, declaring his total um, otherness, independence. You know, we, we can only say truthfully of ourselves, I am because he is. But God can say, I am because I am. <laughs> so, so that's what the name means. I am. Yahweh, and a shorter version of that is Yah, 
Yah. And this is built in to, to a lot of words that we use. One of them is the name here, Joel. Joel. In fact, you've got two words for God here. <clears throat> Yah El. El is a more generic term for God, like, like our uh, term G-O-D. All right, so what does Joel mean? Joel means the Lord, Yahweh, Yah, is God. Yah is God. The Lord is God. So it's a way of declaring um, that the covenant God of the Hebrews, I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord is God. And there is no other. Um, and by the way, if you, if you look at the term Lord there, um, probably, and I haven't checked you know, all of the main uh, translations, at least not lately, um, but probably your translation, it's all capitals. You've got a capital L and then a small capital O, small capital R, small capital D. Um, and that's what that is telling you. It's telling you that this is the Hebrew term Yahweh. If it were just lowercase L O R uh, capital L and then and then lowercase O R D, that's a different Hebrew term, Adonai, uh, which which does mean Lord, but it's it's the more like of a it's just a little bit different nuance to it and can be used sometimes for like Sir or something like that. Um, so when you see those capitals, that's what it's telling you. This is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. So what Joel is saying is, what I'm writing in this book is the word of Yahweh, the Lord. This, this little book, this prophecy, what it is, um, is coming ultimately from the mouth of God. In, in uh, Timothy, Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. It, that is literally exhaled. All Scripture is exhaled by God. Breathed out by God. So that's what Joel is saying. This is the Word of the Lord. It is breathed out by God. It is not my own opinion. It is not, it does, it's not originating in my own head. It's coming from the covenant God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. So the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Now that's his little introduction, his little heading. Now, verses 2 and 3, he addresses the people. And this is kind of a, an attention getter here, setting the stage. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. So, so he's, he's, he's getting their attention. Everybody, listen up. In fact, he says, elders and all inhabitants of the land. And then he gives two, two imperatives here. Here's what I want you to do. First, hear. And secondly, tell. Hear and tell. Because this is the word of Yahweh. This is, this is important. This is why he's saying, listen up. Hear. It's like, listen. Take heed. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. Listen up, elders 
and all inhabitants of the land. And when I'm done, tell it. Make it known. Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. He's saying, proclaim the Word of Yahweh. And hopefully we'll see as we go through here. I mean, this is a, this is a grace. This, this is a manifestation of grace, even though when you look at some of the content, you're going to think, you know, this doesn't look like such good news. But you know, in reality it is because God is making known His ways for their benefit, to, to open their eyes to things that are going on. It's kind of like Jesus saying to us in John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation. And you think, well, boy, that's not real exciting. <laughs> I like a little better news than that. But He's letting us know up front, this is what to expect, and it's all a part of letting us know that He's in control and that everything's going according to His will, and that trouble in this world for the Christian is normal. It's not, it's not like you fell out of the will of God because you're encountering trouble. No. All right? So it's, it's something like that. I'll, we'll try to unpack that as we go. But here he's just getting their attention. Hear and tell. Now notice verse 2. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now he's already setting the stage. See, because something, there's something unique going on here. He's saying, listen, listen up, elders. You've never seen anything like this before, have you? you you've lived long, but you, you've never seen anything like this. And, and listen up, all inhabitants of the land. Because this hasn't happened in your day. This hasn't happened in the day of your fathers. And he's doing it with a question. He, he's raising the question, has, uh, has such a thing happened in your day? But, but the, it's a rhetorical. The answer is no. No. In other words, there's something unique taking place that he wants he wants to get their, uh, he wants to draw their attention to. It's a way of saying, you know, look at what's going on. Pay attention to the, to the circumstances that you're in. And it's amazing uh, sometimes the circumstances that we can be in and, uh, and still not be really paying attention. And, and so again, graciously, God, God wakes us up to these things. And that's, that's what's taking place here. Now, here, here's what's going on. And at first, on the surface, it kind of sounds like the usual, especially for the ancient uh, Middle East. But look at verse 4. Here's the situation. And, and you'll see it's just, and he goes on to expound on it more throughout the chapter, but just um, disaster, devastation, uh, economically, and then that, that bleeds over into uh, other areas of, of life, like uh, even their religious practice is, uh, is um, hindered. Look at verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Okay, a little disclosure right up front here, because you might be thinking, what's the difference in a cutting locust, swarming locust, Popping locust, destroying locust, and my answer is I do not know. They're, they're all they're all bugs, and, and uh, evidently they're 
uh, you know, we don't know. But there, there's, there's, um, there are different types of, obviously, grasshoppers, locusts, caterpillars uh, that come, and, uh, and they do one thing alike. <clears throat> they destroy vegetation, right? And that's what is taking place here. Now, um, I will say this. One of the, one of the, and, I do, and I think this is, this is on the mark. One of the commentators I was looking at was, was talking about um, how the, 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 some of the different types of bugs, you, you don't, they don't all hit at once. And so probably what is indicated here by him saying what, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, probably what, what Joel is indicating here is that you've got several years here of, of one right after the other. One comes in and, you know, just, just does destruction. And then another kind comes in and eats what that one left. And then the next year, the hopping locust comes in and eats what the swarming locust left. And then the next year, the destroying locust comes and eats what the hopping locust left. And so it, it seems to indicate a, a prolonged period of one, uh, what we would call natural disaster after another in terms of, of plagues of locusts or grasshoppers or caterpillars, you know, bugs that eat vegetation. And, and uh, it's a big deal in our day, but it was a bigger deal in their day because they really depended on this. Sometimes I'll hear about a locust plague in the news, but, um, you know, I'll still get up and go to my job. It doesn't, doesn't affect me. Um, so, like I say, it's, it's a different world that we're living in, but for them, big deal. Matter of fact, there was, I don't know if y'all saw that, just probably six months ago, maybe, they had a, a swarm out in New Mexico that showed up on the weather radar. That was pretty wild. I saw the images on the, on the weather radar. Uh, it's pretty serious. <laughs> Cloud of bugs. Um, so, that's, that's what's happening here, and, it, and it's serious because it's, it's wiping out their food supply, and it sounds like it's happening for several years in a row by, by what he describes here. So year after year after year, the food supply is, is being wiped out, and you can imagine over time, you know, whatever they might have in some kind of reserve or whatever alternatives they have, um, things are getting pretty thin. And so they're in, a, they're in a rough spot. And so now Joel um, calls for an awareness of what's going on. You might, you might, um, you might call it a realization. It calls for a realization. Like I said a moment ago, it's kind of hard to believe that you know these things could be happening, and that people wouldn't think. Okay, this, this is unusual. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should consider. You know, maybe, maybe we should consider what's happening. Maybe we should. Seek the Lord and find out what's going on here. But apparently, at least up to this point, they weren't. So now they're getting a wake-up call, a call to to uh, to to wake up, to a call to be aware, a call to realization of what's taking place. He puts it at least four ways here. Look in verse five: awake. Verse eight: lament. Verse eleven: be ashamed. Three ways I said: be ashamed. All right, so um, he's saying, look, be aware of what's going on. It, I mean, this is a reality check. 
There's something taking place, and it's not the norm. Remember verse 2? Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? What Joel is saying, there's something happening here that you need to pay attention to. So wake up out out of your drunken stupor Lament, and that's verse 4, by the way. Wake, wake up, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. And I, I think he's really using that metaphorically. I don't, it's not that, uh, of course, maybe drunkenness was a problem, but, but I think probably what, what Joel is doing here is using that metaphorically. In other words, he's comparing the people to drunkards. Because in the middle of this dire situation... Their, their, their senses, as it were, are dulled. They're not, they're not understanding that God is communicating something here. Now, I, I want to try to be, be careful here and not hopefully... Uh, well, we just have to all try to be careful as we think about this and interpret this and apply this. But um, I, don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that every time something bad happens that we ought to think, um, okay, God is is mad or, you know, I sinned and therefore something bad happened. You know, I had a flat on the way to church, so, okay, what did I do? You know, that must have, I must have been because I did whatever. I, I don't want us thinking like that, but at the same time, um, we ought always to, to, to be sensitive to what's going on. And let me, let me try to, maybe this will help a little bit. Let me just try to give an example here. You know, we, we look at the, well, I'm going, to get, I'm going to try to example this two ways. Um, this is one you hear a lot. I actually think it's probably it's the less significant, probably, but of the two. But here's one: we we talk about the decline in our nation, moral decline, and we see all these things happening. Well, I, I would suggest to you that what is taking place. Um, is a judgment, is a form of judgment, divine judgment. Now, uh, I know a lot of times what people will do is they'll, they'll look at things like, uh, for example, uh, sexual pro- promiscuity, the, 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 how blatant it is today in the, in the you know, entertainment media and all that, or you, you can think in terms of just uh, with a, homosexuality movement and all this and that. And a lot of people will look at those things and they'll say things like, you know, if, if we don't repent, God's going to judge this nation. What I'm suggesting is the presence of those things is judgment. That's what I'm suggesting. That is the judgment. In other words, the, the, the decline and the being turned over to fulfill sinful lust is a judgment from God. That's Romans 1, if you want to check me out on that. Paul goes through that in the first chapter of Romans. All right, so, so we ought to look at those things and say, okay, um, why are things the way they are? And maybe it's because we haven't been faithful to the Lord. But now, hold up, let me, let me say this real quick, because a lot of times I think there's a... A bad application. In fact, let me go back and read you a, a, a very popular passage, 2 Corinthians 7.14. And a lot of times people want to, uh, to apply this to America, uh, and I think that's a bad application. 
in, in one sense. In another sense, uh, I guess you could make it work. But um, Second Chronicles, whoop, I went to 14. Second Chronicles 7:14. Um, often you hear this often quoted. You see signs. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. All right, so a lot of times people will apply that, for example, to America and say that's what we, we, we need to do. Well, of course, people do need to, to humble themselves before the Lord and seek the Lord. But uh, notice he says, if my people. He's speaking here to his people not to nations in general, certainly not the United States of America. He's talking to his people. If my people who are called by my name, that's not Americans, that's Christians. At the time that was written, it was, it was Jews. But today, to, to make it apply, I mean to, to, to bring it over and apply it, we would have to apply it to Christians. My people who are called by my name. In fact, this is a, a very good, uh, I think, uh, very helpful verse for Joel because you go back, look, look at verse 13. This is really, he, he gives an example of some circumstances. Second Chronicles seven thirteen. When I shut up the heavens, now this is God speaking, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. God says, when I do that, when I do these things, then, and notice what's included in that also is send the locusts to devour the land. Then, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In other words, here's the shocking thing, perhaps. Maybe it's not for you, but um, sometimes God will use these things to wake up His own people. In fact, I, I, I think I, I want to draw at least two applications here, three if we're going to count the loss. All right, we, we could say that that things happen, troubles happen. Let's, let's apply it to the to lost people first, and it would be. Uh, we would hope, a way of, of arousing them to their need for God, right? And driving them uh, to Christ. And if we apply it to, to us, to believers, the church, we would, we would think of it in a, in a couple of ways, I think. One would be, and I think this is what we're dealing with here in, in Joel chapter 1, one would be that it would be a, 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 a sort of judgment for sin. In other words, I, it, it seems to me that what is going on here, and I'll have to show you this as we go because I'm drawing this from Joel's language, but it seems to me that what Joel is saying is, and this, this was a shocker for the, for the ancient Jews, that, that God is judging you. See, they were used to that kind of language when it applied to the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, but they didn't think of themselves as being subject to God's judgment. And I think that's what Joel's saying. Wake up! Wait, you, ought, you ought to wake up and you ought to be mourning and you ought to be ashamed because of your sin. And, as um, Solomon says in Chronicles, seek God. Humble yourselves and seek God. So it serves that purpose, right? 
a kind of corrective purpose. Corrective purpose for God's people. And then there's another application. Boy, I've got to do this quick, so I'm not going to turn there. But over in, in, uh, in, in 2 Peter, um, Peter talks about judgment beginning at the house of the Lord. But you know, it's, it's in the context of us suffering trials and so forth. So I, I, don't, I don't think what is happening there, what Peter's talking about is like corrective, like God is punishing us for, for something we did. I think, I think what he's saying is God is preparing us for eternity. So in other words, the trouble, the trials, the hardships in this life would serve the purpose of helping us stay out of love with this world and love Christ. Keep, keep us from, from just um, you know, our, setting our affections on the things of this world. And, and help us set our affections on Christ. I think that's what Peter's talking about. And I, and I think that's the, uh, a big part of the role here as well. In other words, yes, I think this is corrective in Joel. We've got a long history of record of the sins of the children of Israel in the Old Testament, right? And it's constantly. So, and it appears to me by Joel's language he's talking about uh, God taking corrective measures. But at the same time, it's going to come. We'll see this as we go. But it's going to come with a promise of restoration. So, so God is trying to, to, to refocus them on Him. In fact, um, in closing, let's just go ahead and, and get to that. But let me, let me run real, real quick through the, some of the circumstances here. Look at verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because, the sweet wine <coughs> because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. And here it is, for a nation has come up against my land. So here's the situation. There's an invasion. Who is it? Locusts. I think what, what he's doing in verse 5, and he'll continue to do, he's personifying um, this army. He, he calls them that later. Army of locusts. Uh, so, it's, so it's not a nation like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or something. It is locusts. So, so, in other words, go back to verse 2 and 3. Hear this, elders. Tell your children, for a nation, verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Now, here's what it's done. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. And by the way, there's an example, of I think, of the vine being used to represent uh, Israel, or in this case, Judah. So, um, it has laid waste my vine. Verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. Verse 10, the fields are destroyed and, grant, and, the, grounds, and the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, we'll, we'll see these words again. The grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, and the oil languishes. Those things are representative of prosperity and abundance. Grain, wine, Oil, they were, they were necessary in that culture, um, and also just uh, you know for pleasure, grain, wine, oil, but but they're destroyed, they're dried up. Then uh, verse twelve, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, and then what is the ultimate outcome? The end of verse twelve, gladness dries up from the children of man. 
gladness dries up from the children of man. Look at verse 16. Is not food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? So ultimately, because of the economic disaster and the shortage of you know, food that results from it and so forth, uh, from, the, from the devastation of the crops, what happens? Gladness, like the wine, is dried up. Gladness cut off from the house of worship. Verse 16. Now, if, if that be the case, doesn't, doesn't, it, doesn't it insinuate that where they, where they were finding their joy was in all of those things, in, in material prosperity? Grain, wine, oil, which translates, by the way, into, again, prosperity, comfort, ease. Because when those things were gone, no more abundance, no more comfort, no more ease, no more gladness. You see? And that is idolatry. It's idolatry. And that's what I think, again, what Peter is saying the Lord guards us against by bringing trouble into our lives. He says, don't, don't think it's strange when you fall into various trials, oh no. All this is temporary. So what's the answer? And this is what we're going to close with. And this is going to be pretty much the message of the rest of the book. What's the answer? Here it is in verse 14. Cry out to the Lord. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Do you see how he's he's refocusing on them, uh, refocusing them on what really is matter and what really satisfies. And he's going to go on to say that later. You, you, you'll be satisfied. So cry out to the Lord. In fact, you got a bit of a prayer here in verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call. What did he say back in in Second uh, Chronicles? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. Right? Seek. The Lord, right? I will hear their land. So they're out of focus because their, their, their gladness, their joy, their happiness is attached to things and material prosperity. Meanwhile, there's no real worship going on in the house of God. It's died out. And even these things are, are proving to be unsatisfactory so that the gladness of the people is drying up. So cry out to the Lord, Joel says. I'm going to sum this up with two verses because I want us to keep these in mind as we move through it, as we move through the book over the next couple of weeks. Chapter 2, verse 13. 12, I'm sorry, verse 12, 12 and 13. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent. And here's another one still in chapter 2, verse 32. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, he's brought this trouble. God has. Remember, again, Second Chronicles. When I send the locusts, God has brought this trouble upon them to refocus them, to reset their affections in the right place. That's true. You could say, well, didn't they bring it on themselves with their sin? Yeah, absolutely, they did. They're, they're the guilty party. God's not guilty. They're the guilty party. They brought it on themselves with their sin. But you know what? God could just let them go off in it and be destroyed. What he's doing here, what Joel is doing here, when he says, awake, lament, be ashamed. He's trying to wake them up to the whole situation. Pay attention to what's going on so that they're not destroyed. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. So, all this disaster that Joel describes in chapter 1 has that purpose, to, to redirect the focus of the people of Israel on God because ultimately He's all that matters. Their gladness, their joy, their hope, all of that needs to be in Him. In Him. And it's going to come to pass, Joel said, that whoever calls on Him, the Lord, remember the covenant name, Yahweh, whoever calls on the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be real joy. Real gladness grounded in the only one who truly satisfies. And, and when, when does that come? When does that day come? When is that fulfilled? Well, you go to Acts chapter 2 and you'll find out because Peter applies that to Jesus. He says, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, applying it to Jesus, shall be saved. And that's where you and I are. That's the day we live in. The true joy, true happiness, true salvation is found in Jesus Christ. That's where all of our, all of our affections ought to be focused on Him. And nothing else ultimately should matter to us than Him. Would you stand please and we'll dismiss. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, thank You for... Um, the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank You for making these things known to us. Showing us the facts that this, this world and what we think to be pleasures that we, we can experience here are just a facade and that these things are temporary, fading away, passing away. And that the only true joy, eternal joy, is found in You. Lord, we pray, guard us from being in love with the things of this world. Keep us by Your power in Your own love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.